Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. This is our fourth Sunday in Advent. Advent means arrival. And so in the four-week lead-up to Christmas, this season called Advent is designed to really just help us wait on Jesus. This year we are asking the Old Testament prophets to teach us what that looks like. We've already looked at what's called the big three. The big three, Isaiah, Jeremiah, last week, Ezekiel. Today we're going to look at what is sometimes called the Twelve. The Twelve. The Twelve are... Yeah. (laughs) The Twelve are the Twelve shorter prophets in our Old Testament. Sometimes they're called the Minor Prophets. Originally they were on one scroll, which is why they are called the Twelve. One scroll, Twelve Prophets. Now, we could go micro and explore each of these in turn for 12 plus weeks for sure. Right? But we are, um, this whole sermon series, Table Read, is macro. It's not micro. It's macro. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at all 12 of these this morning. I want you to think of these 12 as an orchestra. In an orchestra, each instrument has a unique sound and a unique part. And it's good, I think, to listen and to even study each of those parts, each of those sounds on their own in isolation. But when all these instruments are played together, we hear important tensions and we hear beautiful harmonies. We hear the song in fullness. And that's how I want us to think of these 12 minor prophets. They're important to study alone. But when studied together, like we are doing uniquely this morning... I think we will get a more robust picture of what waiting for Jesus looks like. Okay? So that's how we're going to do this. Now, I will admit that the 12 prophets, the 12 minor prophets, are not only hard to pronounce, but also very hard even to understand. And so I think we can cut through the fog if we just keep two things in mind this morning. A map and a timeline. I'm going to try to make this as easy as possible for us. So first, the map. I want us to remember and in our mind's eye picture God's kingdom as divided into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern. You have Israel in the north, you have Judah in the south. Sometimes Israel in the north is called Ephraim. North and south. And to the left of God's divided kingdom is water. And to the right of God's divided kingdom is a giant empire that changes hands every couple centuries. Okay, so this is what I want you to picture in your mind's eye, which takes us to the second key to cutting through the fog of the 12. It's a timeline. So these 12 prophets did their ministry and were active from 700s BC to 400s BC. And during this timeline, the water on the left stayed the same. (laughs) But the empire on the right changed hands, okay? It changed hands. And here's how I remember it. A, B, C. A, B, C. This is how I remember it. So, in the 700s, if we could change the slide. 
Anything? There we are. So in the 700s, you have Assyria. In the 600s, you have Babylon. And then in the 500s and 400s, you have Cyrus of Persia. So ABP doesn't work as well in my brain, so I can say ABC, okay? Now, with these two keys, we're, we're ready now to plug in the 12 prophets. My slides aren't working, so I'm going to have to go with Adam. Hosea, Amos, Micah, and Jonah, there with Assyria. Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Obadiah with Babylon. Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, and Malachi with Persia. Now, why is this important? Well, it's good, first of all, to know our Bibles if we're called to submit to the Bible. Amen? It's just good to know. But this little chart is more than just Bible trivia. This little chart, I think, proclaims an important truth about God. And it's this, that the Lord is not aloof. The Lord is not set back. But the Lord is hands-on. The Lord is not just interested in our lives, but he intervenes in our lives. He intervenes even in history. That's what this proclaims. And this morning, these 12 prophets are going to show us what I think it means to faithfully wait on that intervention from God. But first, let's pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, so a couple weeks ago, my wife Josie and I found a show that we both liked, which is a cause for celebration. And this show was great uh, while it lasted. Now, I say while it lasted because it was over as soon as we started it. Because you know the drill. You're watching the show. It ends on a cliffhanger. And so you look and you say, let's just watch the first 10 minutes of the next episode. That'll bring closure. No, it doesn't bring closure because in the next 10 minutes of the next episode, they just ratchet the tension up more. And then that show ends and you say the same thing, rinse and repeat. And sadly, this whole season ended with no closure. (laughs) The worst. It's a terrible feeling. We, We hate, we hate being left hanging. My wife in particular. And the truth is we all hate it. We all long for closure, whether it's a story we're reading or even in our own stories. We long for Closure. We will even settle for false closure, won't we? We will settle for false closure because it feels so bad to live without it. About a decade ago, a good friend of mine uh, felt the freedom to tell me that I was not listening well to him. It's a good friend. Why did he say this? Because after he was sharing his struggles, I tried to put a bow on everything that he was saying. I was trying to find and even manufacture closure before breakfast was over. And that wasn't listening. That wasn't loving to my friend. See, we hate it when life leaves us hanging. So what if instead, instead of trying to find closure, we just learn to wait? So a 20th century theologian actually defined modern atheism as a failure to wait. Think about that. Not so much a lack of faith as a lack of patience. So we experience suffering. We experience intellectual suffering, personal suffering. And instead of waiting for a divine resolution to that, we make and we find our own closure and oftentimes even give up on God. 
So the Hebrew scholar Jack Collins summarized the whole Old Testament as a story with no closure. A story with no closure. And if this makes us uncomfortable, just think how it made them feel who were living in it. We see this 12 times over in the, in the Minor Prophets. Remember, they lived through four centuries of unrelenting trauma, really. But their job as prophets was not to provide closure. The false prophets, they were providing all kinds of closure. They were putting bows on everything. But in this ancient world of hot takes, only the prophets we have in our Old Testament were telling the truth. They were God's mouth. And God is saying through them, wait on me. Twelve times over and in twelve different ways with the minor prophets. Wait on me. Now, what does it mean to wait? That's our question this morning because that's such a vague command, isn't it? Wait. It's so vague, which is why I'm glad we have a 12 instrument orchestra telling us to wait in 12 different but complementary ways. 12 prophets who, when taken together, will create a vision of what we could call faithful waiting. What does faithful waiting look like? Well, if you look at this map chart right here, and you see these three seasons of threat, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, all we have to do is map onto this the 12 minor prophets, and we have a sermon outline. Okay? We do. Because in the first crisis, Hosea, Amos, Micah, and Jonah are, are speaking God's word in the midst of Assyria. And with the Babylonian crisis, we have the prophets Nahum, Habakkuk, Obadiah, and Zephaniah. There we go. And with Persia, we have Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, and Malachi. And Max, feel free to just try to hang with me. If you don't, no one cares. See, the Assyrian crisis teaches us to wait. First, with what we'll call holistic repentance. Holistic repentance. So Hosea, Amos, and Micah all lived in the 700s. Which means they had to pastor God's people through the Assyrian crisis. So in 722, Assyria will take the northern kingdom like a queen takes a pawn, essentially. And they will nearly take the southern kingdom two centuries later, two decades later. So what does God have to say to this? That's the question of Hosea, Amos, and Micah, and Jonah. What does God have to say to this? And this is where Hosea, Amos, and Micah come in and tell us to wait with holistic repentance. Now what does that mean? Well, if repentance means turning from sin to the Lord, most of the time I think that we relegate this word repentance to the spiritual and to the personal realm. It's not holistic. And what these prophets help us with is to say that repentance in the midst of crisis is much bigger. It's holistic. God's people, yes, must turn from spiritual idolatry, but yes, they must also turn from social injustices. Both are true with the prophets. And we see this actually when we read Hosea and Amos together. So Hosea helps us see that God is using Assyria to judge Israel's idolatry. So chapter 14, verse 8 says this. O Israel, stay away from idols. I am the one who answers your prayers. 
and cares for you. I am like a tree that is always green. All your fruit comes from me. Turn from spiritual idolatry. But Amos helps us see that God is using Assyria to judge Israel's socioeconomic injustices. Amos is, uh, in other words, Amos's in, uh, sort of observation, his burden is not as much spiritual idolatry as it is social realities. And so chapter five, I'm sorry, chapter two, verse seven says this. The people of Israel have sinned again and again. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. And so in this book, we actually learn. That God will not accept their meticulous worship without justice on the streets. Chapter 5, 24 says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. See, in the church today, I think we often separate these two things, don't we? There are soul change Christians and there are social change Christians. But the prophets don't share this division. They break it. They shatter that division. See, these two things are married. Love God, love neighbor. They're married. And we see this marriage actually in Micah. So in chapter 3, he brings judgment against God's rulers who hate justice. I'm quoting, hate justice, verse 9, and twist what is right. But then he also brings judgment against the prophets and the priests who are leading my people astray. Verse 5. So turning to the Lord involves our hearts and our hands. That's the takeaway. Our worship and our ethics. A a concern for souls and bodies. So we wait with holistic repentance. But we also wait with a heart on mission. We have one more minor prophet during the Assyrian crisis. Do you remember? Jonah. Jonah. You might know his story. He's called to announce judgment against who? Assyria. Just heard about that. In particular, Nineveh. And you would think that he would relish the opportunity. (laughs) Right? All this judgment against Israel. Gosh, I'm so glad, God, that you're calling me to judge Assyria. Here I go. But instead, what does he do? He runs in the opposite direction. And it kind of leaves us wondering why, right? Well, we don't find out to the very end. So God buries him in a fish, vomits him out. And then when Jonah finally speaks God's word of judgment to Nineveh, what happens? They repent. They actually do what Israel was called to do, but didn't do. And all throughout Jonah is a scandalous book, if an Israelite is reading it, because we witness God's enemies doing the very thing that Israel is called to do. Throughout all of their history, but especially right now. Repent. Spiritual sensitivity. Reflecting God's character for the watching world. All those things. And so God shows mercy, but then what happens? Jonah complains. That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. This isn't worship, this is anger. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now. Jonah is furious. That God shows mercy to his enemy. Do 
And the book ends with a question. What about you? What about you? And so Jonah teaches us to wait, I think, with a heart on mission. A heart on mission. Which takes us to the fourth reality. That was the Assyrian crisis, the first two. Now we're into the Babylonian crisis. Assyria will take over the northern kingdom, which means two things. The new threat is Babylon. And the prophets from here on out, Nahum, Habakkuk, Abadiah, and Zephaniah, these prophets now are all living and doing their ministry in the southern kingdom in Judah. And now the new threat is Babylon. And so what happens is God speaks in the midst of this crisis and says, wait on me with what? First with resilient faith. We see this with Nahum, Habakkuk, and Obadiah. So first Nahum. So apparently Nineveh, the repentance that happened in Nineveh that Jonah witnessed was shallow. Because Assyria eventually was destroyed by Babylon as judgment for their evil. So chapter 3 verse 19 says, All who hear of your destruction, Assyria or Nineveh, will clap their hands for joy. Where can anyone be found who has not suffered from your continual cruelty? I think Nahum gives voice to those who suffer from continuous cruelty. Obadiah also, I think, helps victims of injustice and even abuse see that God will make things right in the end. This is resilient faith. So Ebediah is a very short book of judgment against Edom, who aided and abetted Babylon, basically, against Judah. Verse 15 says, As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. I think victims of abuse can hold on to the promise that God will faithfully judge their abuser. Resilient faith. And then Habakkuk. Scholars compare Habakkuk uh, to Job. He asks hard questions like, How long, O Lord? How long must I call for your help, but you do not listen? And then when God says that he's using Babylon to judge Judah, Habakkuk voices probably the question that you're having right now in your own heart, which is this. I am struggling, Lord, with the idea that you are using a wicked empire to judge your people. That is kind of hard for me. And so Habakkuk is like Job. He gives voice to some of our questions. And he asks in verse 13, basically, will you wink at their treachery? Is that what's going on? And in the end, Habakkuk struggles and I think models resilient faith in the midst of all that wrestling. At the end of Habakkuk, in these well-known words, we read this prayer of thanksgiving. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, and even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, and even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the Lord of my salvation. This is resilient faith. This is a cheap faith. This is resilient faith. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. This reminds me of the farmer, author, essayist, Wendell Berry's manifesto. Be joyful, though you have considered the facts. He might have ripped that off of the back of it. Be joyful, even though you have considered all the facts. 
Because we serve the God who's writing the story and who will write all of us. That's resilient faith. See, these three prophets call us to wait with resilience. Faith that hangs on to God's promises and God's character. Like Alex Honnold hangs on to a, a, like a hold on the mountain without any ropes. If you've ever watched that commentary, Free Solo, you see him doing these crazy things that boulders are like, yeah, that's an impossible bouldering problem. And he's doing it like a bajillion feet in the air without any ropes on. But he's hanging on as if his life depended on it. And that's exactly what faith is. Faith is hanging on to God's promises as if our life depended on it. And we see that reflected in these prophets. God will make things right. But there's one prophet left in the Babylonian crisis, and that's Zephaniah. And Zephaniah helps us see that we wait with a reformation of the heart. He's a fascinating prophet because his ministry was during the reign of King Josiah. And if you were with us during the Kings, you remember that King Josiah was famous for his religious reforms. He was a so-called good king. But Zephaniah the prophet says essentially, external reform is not enough. It's good, but it's not enough. God is calling us to a reformation of the heart. Seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. We wait with humility. We wait and we ask God for a reformation of the heart, not just externally. Which takes us to the final crisis, the Persian crisis. Empires, they seem too big to fall, right? But they're not. And so Assyria gives way to the Babylon in ancient history. Babylon gives way to Persia. And at this point, the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah, they've both been sacked by each empire, respectively. But Cyrus of Persia is more friendly to Israel. And so he allows them to return and to rebuild, under his thumb, of course, but he allows them to return to rebuild. And this, is, therefore, is a complicated season of both hope and disappointment. And so these four prophets, these minor prophets that do their ministry in this season, I think help us wait in the midst of disappointment. And in two particular ways. First, with steady building. That's Haggai and Zechariah. When, when you read these prophets together, they tell God's people to keep building, to keep working. The Lord calls God's people to steady building through Haggai. In chapter 2, Haggai says, Does anyone remember this house, this temple, and its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all, but now the Lord says, Be strong, Zerubbabel. That was the, the prince over the new, new uh, Judah after their exile. Be strong, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people still left in the land, and now get to work. For I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts. My spirit remains among you, just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. So do not be afraid. Yeah, I know you're disappointed. I know you're disappointed, Haggai. The Lord says through Haggai, I know you're disappointed. This is like nothing like what it was. I get it. But, but my character hasn't changed. I'm the same God that brought you out of Egypt. So keep building. Steady, steady building. And he says essentially the same thing with Zechariah. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Be strong and finish the task. Don't be afraid. Be strong and get on with rebuilding 
the temple. God's people do not passively wait. We build things. See, Advent is a season of waiting, but it's not passive waiting. We build things. We're steady, even when things aren't glorious, even as we, as we sort of are disappointed with life, life with God even. We still get to work because we know that God will restore everything in fullness in His time. We're in a story that's going somewhere. Which takes us to the last of the two twelve. The last two of the twelve. That's Joel and Malachi. And they teach us, I think, to wait with sober hope. We're called to hope for God's future. But I think we're called to do so with sobriety. Joel uses a locust plague to teach Israel about how to wait with sober hope. Because he compares the locust plague to the day of the Lord, Yahweh's day. And this was a hoped for day for God's people because for them it was the day that God would vindicate, that God would show his arm of justice, that God would vindicate them once and for all and vanquish his enemies. But Joel complicates that day because he says God's justice is actually pretty indiscriminate. It goes even to my own people. Joel says, yes, look forward to that day of judgment. Look forward to that day of justice. He will bring it, but not just to your enemies, but to hard hearts amongst his people as well. That's sobering. And so we read in chapter 2 this, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That tension of sobriety, verse 31, and hope, verse 32. It's Joel's calling card. It's a sober hope. And Malachi holds the same tension before us. The last two verses of Malachi are actually the last two verses of our Old Testament's. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Okay, so there it is. That is a tension of judgment and salvation. That is a tension of sobriety and hope, isn't it? It's right there. See, Malachi went... Malachi with Joel helps us anticipate John the Baptist who was compared to Elijah the prophet. Helps us anticipate John the Baptist who will himself point to a way out of this utter destruction. And that way is a person. When I'm working from home, I get to work Beside my dog. And I like to think that we're super bonded. But the truth is, the whole time I'm there, he's basically waiting for my wife to come up. So he's super chill, but he has this kind of lonesome, kind of like look on his face as he sits on the chair. And I know he's waiting for my wife. Here's why. Every single time a car door opens, he's like this. And he perks up, 
he gets excited, and then he gets sad again. Basically, the whole time. <laughs> See, my dog's life, I think, is essentially one long life of waiting. Waiting for, like, human food to drop off the table, basically. And when that doesn't happen, waiting for my wife to come home. And here's my point. This life of waiting is fundamentally fixed on one person. This life of waiting that we're called to as believers is fixed on one person. And friends, that's what ultimately these 12 point us to. They help us wait with holistic repentance. Amen. With a heart for mission. Amen. With resilient faith. Yes. With a reformation of the heart. Yes, indeed. With steady building and with sober hope, of course. But all of these ways of waiting have one single focus. And it's a person. It's one person. And that person is Jesus. We don't wait for a better future. We don't wait for circumstances to change. We wait for Jesus. And ultimately, therefore, the 12 are just 12 different ways to wait for Jesus. We are faithless. But the Lord says through Hosea, I will heal you of your faithfulness. Verse 4, chapter 14. My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. Jesus, our faithful spouse, heals our faithlessness with his faithfulness. Hosea. We've torn down God's house with, with, with our sin, but the Lord says through the prophet Amos, and I'm quoting, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. Jesus, the son of David, from the house of David, is torn down for our sin. And we become the rebuilt temple as we are in Christ, as we are found in Christ, the risen one. The church, the temple, where God's spirit dwells, his glory. See, we're in exile because of our rebellion, but the Lord says through Micah, and I'm quoting, a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from Bethlehem on my behalf, and he will be a source of peace. Chapter 5, verse 5. Jesus is the only source of peace. Our long exile is over and only in him. See, we don't deserve God's mercy, but God asks Jonah, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Chapter 4, verse 11. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? So we wait for Jesus who shows us how eager God is to, and I'm quoting chapter 4, verse 2, to turn back from destroying people. Jesus who shows God's heart by being destroyed in our stead. We're actually and absolutely sick in our addiction to sin and to self-destruction. We're checkmated by sin's consequence, death. We cannot escape it. But God says through Nahum, and I'm quoting, Look, a messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. He is bringing a message of peace. So celebrate your festivals, O people of Judah, and fulfill all your vows, for your wicked enemies will never invade your land again. They will be completely destroyed. We wait for Jesus who completely destroys sin and death and Satan forever. We wait for Jesus. We are confused that God would somehow use wicked people for his purposes. But God says through Habakkuk, quoting, 
You went out to rescue your chosen people, to save your anointed ones. You crushed the heads of the wicked. So Jesus is crushed by the wicked empire of Rome so that we would be made alive. His plan was to crush the head of the serpent. He wins, Jesus does, by losing. And you win in him. We're weak, we're helpless in our sin and the sins of others against us. But the Lord says through Zephaniah, and I'm quoting, I will save the weak and helpless ones. Jesus sees the weak and helpless. He has eyes for the weak and helpless. Look at the Gospels. What's he doing? He's seen the weak and the helpless. That's what qualifies you for his rescue. We're scattered. We've lost our inheritance. But the Lord says through Obadiah, and I'm quoting, and the people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance. Jesus is our inheritance. He is our prize. We're disappointed with God. We have trouble seeing beauty. We have trouble seeing beauty in the church. But the Lord says through Haggai, the future glory of this temple will be greater than his past glory, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus is the glorious temple in flesh. He's God's forever presence. And he will rebuild this whole creation into his temple. So much so that Revelation says there is no need for the Son. We're in desperate need for forgiveness. Well, the Lord says through Zechariah, quote, Listen to me, O Jeshua high priest, and all you other priests. You are symbols of things to come. Soon I'm going to bring my servant the branch, and I will remove the sins of this land in a single day. Jesus is the branch from the tree of David, who is also a perfect priest, removing our sins on a single day. We're fed up trying to save ourselves, but the Lord promises through Joel. You heard it. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus will receive all who know their need. Do you believe that? Jesus will receive all who know their need and call on his name. And more than that, he gives everyone, young, old, male, female, his spirit to the church at Pentecost. So that this from Joel 2, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. We doubt that God cares. But he says through Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, look, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to the temple. And so 400 years later, Jesus removes every doubt. God is not asleep. He has decisively entered into his own story. The son of righteousness is risen with healing in his wings. You see, who are we going to be waiting for this Advent? That's the question. And these prophets say, I'll tell us who to look for. It's Jesus. Lord, we come to you now. We come to you with our hopes set on you. We're so grateful that these 12, perhaps were obscure books in our Bibles before this morning, have become avenues and channels of hope, actually avenues and channels to Jesus. And so we receive, Lord, your word this morning, and we set our hopes on you, Jesus. I say, meaning we pray. Amen. 
Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.